For January 10th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 132, written by writers. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I am Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink all manner of things, especially... The Verizon iPhone. That's right. We are going to devote an entire episode to talking about Apple products and uh, the purported, the rumored uh, release of the iPhone for on Verizon. Uh, you see, there's a lot of problems with the CDMA network. You know, you can't have voice and data going at the same time. And it's a very strange way that you know Apple is taking its tactics. I think we should really discuss this in depth for an hour on our podcast because everyone wants to talk here about it. That's the, you know, this is the thing about podcasts, right? Like, um, there's a there's a kind of a selection bias in the audience because the people who listen to podcasts are people who are a little bit tech forward anyway, right? They're they're early adopters. It's not, um, and and this is changing. It has changed over the over the course of the last year, but. Um, you know, the people who do podcasts are people who are comfortable with things like RSS feeds and, you know, file, you know, the file management involved and, and this kind of thing. So you get a lot of tech podcasts because the people who can listen to podcasts are interested in tech. So, you know, the, the reason it's bad to talk about the iPhone 4 is not necessarily because we don't have many good things to say about it, but, all, but because that's what everybody else is talking about. So uh, the, the other reason is that we don't have anything good to say about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other. That's the other reason. Um, so uh, so we'll talk about something else. You know, uh, in our pre-show, uh, uh, Jordan uh, I think proposed the idea that uh, many of the films um, that are uh, like uh, like the King's Speech or Black Swan, Black Swan or um, uh, the Black Swan. No, just Black Swan, isn't it? It's the King's sweet speech, but it's a, a it's a black swan. Black swan. Any, <laughs> it's really any black swan. Any this black swan. It's, it's, no, it's just it's just black swan. The black swan is the book about statistical variance, and black swan is the movie that's the female version of the wrestler. Right. Hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> and the, and the, the Black Knight is a Martin Lawrence movie about uh, a very moody Bruce Wayne who becomes Batman. Right. No, 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 Black Black Knight is the Martin Lawrence movie. The Dark Knight is the Bruce Wayne movie. The Black Knight is the Monty Python character. (laughs) And Count Blackula is the, no, this is. (laughs) It's just Blackula. It's not Count Blackula. It's just Blackula, and it's Count Chocula, not the Count Chocula. The Black Knight is also a 1954 movie uh, starring Alan Ladd as a uh, as an as I think a, a uh, blacksmith who who is in love with a princess and tries to become a knight. The um, The Black so. Knight is also a, a chess Black piece. Knight. Is two chess pieces, I suppose. Right. <laughs> well, then, in case Those it's not appropriate, black, because yeah. it should be all black knight, not the, one the of black two black knights. Um, I think so, that we, we are hitting the nail on the head in terms of talking about the issues of the day that our podcast listeners want to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. The use of articles in the names of various unrelated things that share one or maybe two words in their names. So, awesome. Um, Many of these films seem to be a, a metaphor for the creative process, So, uh, mm-hmm. except for True Grit, which Fenzel argues is not a metaphor for the creative <laughs> process. But he will, uh, he'll, he'll fill us in on that when it's his turn. Um, so, uh, so question for the panel tonight, opening question, uh, 
give a metaphor for the creative process. <laughs> yeah? Pete Fenzel, yeah. coming, in, coming in from the Boston area. What's going on? Awesome. Hey, everybody. Uh, so I, I thought about this, and I'd say that the creative process is like, and of course, similes are subsets of metaphors, uh, is, is like assisting in the birth of a calf. Uh, because there's this <laughs> is that not a creative process in itself well yeah when you, say, when you say the creative process like you know qua the creative process we're, we're again we talk <laughs> about the versus not the the creative process <laughs> is actually referring to a, a far less creative process than the actual creation of life we're referring to like making movies or like making uh songs or drawing pictures or, or some sort of you know artistic creativity right like the creative process is not when i like eat too many twinkies and i and i increase the size of like my my adiposal tissue like that is not a creative process (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it is a creative process it is not the creative process though it is delicious um no so the creative process is like assisting in the birth of a calf because it's something that uh the only thing that you know about it to start out with is that it's supposed to happen without your intervention Right, like you're not supposed to have anything to do with it. It's supposed to just happen and be okay. But then, for some reason, because of grave danger, or, or because you've been pulled into it by somebody who knows what they're doing more than you do, uh, or because it just happens to be necessary, you get involved in this thing that's happening, where this beast that you're at one point supposed to be somewhat familiar with, but appears as a sort of amorphous shape, like clad in, in bloody tissues and membranes, like surging underneath, like a scary aperture into which you dare not look, but must look and must reach your hands. Uh, this thing like is struggling out into the world and you have to do an, an intermittent uh, series of sort of checking to make sure everything is okay all right and then sort of like letting it happen right and then sort of uh, like violently cutting through a series of membranes in the correct order uh, so that it can uh, walk forward into the world and then once it gets out it can walk on its own automatically already and and will never remember you or know who you are um, and will take on a life of its own, and your primary consideration becomes dealing with the aftershocks and consequences of the thing that gave birth to this thing, and making sure that the act was not so tiring, exhausting, or off-putting that you like collapse uh, and bleed out, and or like become a broken alcoholic talking about your first novel all the time. And so that's how the creative process. If all goes well, eventually you get enough hamburgers to eat for a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and yeah, and, and the, the end result is, of course, like, um, get more cheese, which is yeah, really what we yeah. should all be going for. Um, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, much more of the birth of a calf than the birth of a human. The birth of a human is a much, it's a much more sort of like, uh, I don't know, comfortable thing. Right? I mean, we're all uncomfortable with it to yeah, one degree or another. But by like, a man who will never go through childbirth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, I think that it make, I'm creating even a, a yet another barrier between myself and where the actual creativity takes place, right? Like, I'm not even the person primarily conducting the calf birth in this thing. Like, you just sort of blunder into it and see that it's happening and then have to, like, work diligently to make sure it doesn't become a horrible screw-up. Because oh, the other thing about it is that if calf birth doesn't happen over a certain period of time, like, the cow is very likely to die. Or the calf is very likely to die as well because the umbilical cord of a cow is not long or flexible enough to extend to the calf, like, after the calf has come out of the, uh, the calf gyna or the cow gyna. Um, it's like if the calf takes too long to come out, the umbilical cord uh, strains and the calf dies and there might be uh, a, a hemorrhage and the cow would die as well. So that's something that needs to happen right now when it needs to happen. Is that serious? Yeah. I'm, 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 you think I didn't Google calf births before I started talking? I totally I like, you, Googled calf births. <laughs> I was like, you know an astonishing amount about the birthing of calves. <laughs> 
I was reading frantically as soon as we came up with the question because I want to communicate only the the most up to date research that you can find from a Google search to our listeners. Yes, definitely. Uh, without without going to Google Scholar, you know that you can find from a Google web search. <laughs> right, right. In the the Journal of Calf Birthing, which of course you need to be behind a institutional firewall to to get like more than just an abstract. Yeah, I would I would quote my high school quiz bowl teacher or a coach who said that the good teams know the answers, but the great teams know the questions. Like in this day and age of Google, the the challenge of intelligence is not to know the facts, but to know what to search for, like know what to ask. Um, so there you go. So I was like, oh, I want to ask about calf births. Boom. Oh, and if you want me to know, you wanted me to say something about True Grid, I'll just quickly say that True Grid is is driven by this uh, very single-minded pursuit of this thing that, like, has a a very deeply personal, metaphysical, moral necessity. Like, I must do this specific thing, and I must do it in this way. It needs to happen in this way. Uh, I don't think that, whereas there are people who act that way around the creative process, I think that part of why they act that way is a compensation for the sort of chaos and intermittence and uh, and extent and variation of the creative process, they, this thing, the creative process is kind of like an alien thing. Like it's it's sort of almost interspecing, uh, and it, it is not something that where you walk into the writing the book knowing like that Tom Cheney is X and you need to get to Tom Cheney and kill him. You know, like it, it's not that simple unless you're like you know writing a Mike Hammer story, and even then it's not that simple. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's the why story would, yeah. Of how the, uh, the first Mike Hammer story got written. No, no, no. And by the way, Mike ha- Hammer to, to everybody's uh, edification is like a very sort of steamy classic, like uh, noir PI, but like the one who's very sort of like, um, like she, her legs went all the way to the floor, and like I looked up that dame, and and then there was a gunshot. You know, it's it's like that sort of stuff. It's not the more sort of uh, philosophical noir stuff. But anyway, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. Uh, he like uh, I think that was Mickey Spillane was like, yeah, he had some kind of regular job, and he was <laughs> tired of not having any money, so he sat down in two weeks wrote like whatever the first Mike Hammer story was and then made a million billion dollars. <laughs> so that's, that's one creative process. <laughs> that Nikki Spillane is a God among men. He, he's cause he's a writer who works. I mean, he's, he's dead unfortunately, but yeah, it's uh, definitely, if you want, if you want a movie recommendation, go watch kiss me deadly, uh, you know, <laughs> which is the, uh, a film adaptation of a Mike Hammer story by Mickey Spillane. Mm. Kiss Me Deadly is a trip. Yeah, absolutely watch that. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. And it has it has just the most fantastic MacGuffin in it. Uh, and there are also there are two versions of it, which are you know, kind of broadly speaking, a, a happy version and a sad version. Uh, it was recut into a happy version and and, and released. Uh, but you want to get the uh, you want to get the depressing version. You definitely want to get that. <laughs> Also, if you get the chance, watch the trailer. The original trailer for Kiss Me Deadly is also really hilarious because it was clearly made by people who had access to a bunch of shots from the movie but had not seen the movie. So, like, they don't even really seem to know the characters' names. It's always like, could this man save this woman from this man or these men? And like, and then it goes on like that for a solid five minutes. <laughs> uh, could these people pursue this thing to to the ultimate conclusion. See, the creative process is kind of like the trailer to Kiss Me Deadly. (laughs) (laughs) With these shoes. It's not your turn yet. Hold on. Next is is Mark Lee from Brooklyn's Tony Park Slope neighborhood. 
All right. So the creative process is kind of like the Verizon iPhone. In which, no, it's not <laughs> like the Verizon iPhone at all. No, I, I'm going to get to my real answer in a second. But the uh, someone mentioned the uh, alien life form or something like that, or alien species earlier. It's got me thinking about how the creative process is like this um, sort of, you know, alien baby egg that uh, bursts out. And the idea then sort of like latches onto my brain and then gets in my body and makes me seem like I'm dead for a week. Um, and then, you know, I, I feel better. And then all of a sudden the idea bursts out of my chest, um, scampers around, <laughs> scares everybody, uh, hides in the alien ship for a while and then comes back as a fully formed grown idea and scares the crap out of everybody, eats everybody um, and is finally ejected from the uh, from the escape pod of my mind out into the internet that's one way of how you can see the uh, the creative process and sometimes i do feel like my articles are planted into my brain by uh, by extraterrestrial hostile extraterrestrial species but the what i'm actually going to say is, is something a little bit better uh, more uh, not as bizarre as that um so creative process i think of this I think of uh, it's very difficult to start and you and uh, you know and so sort of the initial creation of a product is done uh, you know in uh, you know under conditions of severe adversity and uh, and long odds um, when it becomes successful it challenges the status quo it uh, breaks the mold and it becomes even more successful it becomes the status quo itself and uh, as it continues to try to maintain its successful uh, status and influence winds up compromising itself winds up uh, collapsing over on its own weight of uh, legacy costs and uh, high expectations. So basically what I'm saying mm-hmm. is the creative process is like the foundation of influential companies. No, yeah. well, I was sure that you were going with uh, the creative process is like the Terminator franchise. <laughs> well, that is a creative process, right? That is, you know, yeah. the actual sort of like the, what I'm really speaking about is the establishment of these uh, franchises, right? These uh, creative properties um, that you know sort of reach great heights and then collapse. We'll think about what we thought was going to be General Motors, right? You know, a small upstart influential company uh, rises to great prominence and seemed like it was going to collapse under the weight of its legacy costs uh, up until a few uh, years ago when it was miraculously bailed out by the government and somehow was able to turn itself around. Um, but maybe a better example of this is Apple Computer, right? Started in a, started in the garage under great adversity, um, uh, you know, attained great success. Um, did co- sort of you know collapse under great expectations, uh, maybe not legacy cost, but definitely great expectations. Um, was able to turn itself around too. So that, in some ways, is also a good metaphor for the creative process for uh, rebooting yourself, right? Um, no pun intended with the you know computer usage there. Um, basically, well, so so what I'm saying here is like creating companies is like creating creative. Uh, products there that's not much of a stretch there but that's the best i got well that and an alien coming out of my chest and escaping onto the internet that sounds that sounds oddly sinister i mean i guess a lot of creative people talk about um feeling as though they don't generate the ideas as though the ideas come from somewhere else and they're uh they're, <laughs> you know that the um uh that they're kind of taking dictation from you know from some source whether it's you know god or your own unconscious or or xenu uh, Zenu or what, you know what have you, but um, the uh, uh, but it, it's usually not so sinister. That makes it sound terrible, though. Like uh, like writing a post on overthinking it, or you know, shredding in an awesome guitar solo, or you know, I don't know, uh, uh, writing a, a short story or something like that. Like it uh, that it like is very destructive to you, and that's a um, you know that's a 19th century sort of romantic <laughs> idea. That's like a Lord Byron. Uh, mm. you know, idea. And uh, 
I don't know. That's uh, that's that's sinister. I, I yeah, it is. Well, so, okay. Should, so I was obviously you mostly joking. Write about- less on overthinking <laughs> it if it really takes such a toll on you. Give yourself time to recover between posts. You know. <laughs> so I'm obviously joking, like mostly joking about this alien, you know, this alien metaphor about the being the creative process. But what you're touching on, Matt, there, this idea of sort of being possessed by another spirit that's not quite yourself. Um, I think there is actually some, there is a lot of truth behind that, or at least I feel that certainly, especially when, uh, as you so put it, shredding a guitar solo, um, you're, you're sort of taken over by a, a spirit, which is not quite your own. Sure. And that, that spirit is probably made up of a lot of things, right? Like, um, cocaine, (laughs) alcohol, (laughs) Randy Rose, dead, dead ghosts. Uh, <laughs> fun fact, fun fact, by the way, um, Randy Rose, the shred-tastic uh, former uh, lead guitarist for Ozzy Osbourne, who, uh, who played on Crazy Train, um, died the morning of March 19th, 1982, a few hours before I was born. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> it's like the Dalai Lama, you know? You it's exactly know. like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> you know, like yeah. right, when, right when one dies, the, the next is reincarnated. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right, Stokes. Okay, now it's your turn, Jordan. You can go now. Yeah. So I, uh, I don't really have any opinions about this on my own. There are two people smarter than I that I'd like to, uh, to sort of – well, I'm going to quote one of them and just sort of explain the other one because it was an extended metaphor. The composer Benjamin Britten has a quote about uh, composition where he says, Composing is like driving down a foggy road towards a house. Slowly you see more details of the house, the color of the slates and bricks, the shape of the windows. The notes are the bricks and the mortar of the house. And then the other is uh, the writer Annie Dillard has this great book called The Writing Life, which I recommend to everyone who's ever tried to do anything creative. It's deeply depressing. Um, where she, she gives this metaphor that uh, the creative process is like um, if you see a stunt pilot doing flips and loops and barrel rolls and whatnot, um, that looks really kind of awesome. Being in the plane while that's going on has nothing to do with the experience of watching it. Rather, you're just kind of like <laughs> smashed against your seat by the G-forces. Um, and it's like a deeply, deeply miserable experience. You black out because like the blood has been forced away from your optic nerve. Um, and like, like you're un- unable to see. Uh, and th- that's what the creative process is, at least to her. Now, I don't find it as unpleasant as that. But I think both of these kind of uh, get at which is what was kind of going through my mind that made me think about the stuff beforehand uh, in the in the pre-show interval, is that the creative process is very, very little like art. And uh, to, to look at the movies that have been coming out, like, I mean, Black Swan being kind of the big example probably, uh, would have you think that the creative process is a lot like art, that it's kind of overwhelming in the same way that art is overwhelming. And it's not really true, at least for me. The creative process is overwhelming, but in a much, much more boring and tedious and, uh, and kind of annoying way than, uh, than the finished product can be overwhelming. Yeah, I always tell people, I'd make the distinction among writers of writers who like writing and writers who like having written, right? Because it's such a totally mm. different uh, experience and fondness um writers who like you know having written are great because they talk about all their ideas for their screenplays and all their cool stuff that they're going to do and writers who write are not as cool because they're moping around about how they haven't gotten enough work done and or they're not hanging out because they're working or they're all sleep deprived or they drink too heavily 
Um, or they're awesome, like us, like us, we're the best. <laughs> yeah, then like, and, and then they go ahead and actually do the writing, whereas a lot of yeah, exactly. just like having written will we'll never crank anything out. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, Although, it's, like, it's, the same, it's the same with podcasters who podcast as opposed to podcasters <laughs> who talk about yeah. podcasting. I could be yeah. right, that's true. I could be at a house party watching The Cape with a bunch of friends right now. You know, I'm just saying. You could be at The Cape watching House Party with a bunch of friends right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be a better idea. <laughs> what if it were a pajama jammy jam? Would that make it a better proposition? Is, are we going to call it the Hyannis jammy jam? Is that what's going to happen right now? Oh, man. Uh, okay, it's Sorry, think- Cape Cod High, a little bit high grade in the Cape Cod jokes there. I'll back off of that for a little bit for everybody. Appreciate it. Mm. I think it's my. Uh, I think it's my turn. I want to. Um, uh, I guess driving towards a house. Here, here was going to be mine. It's like taking a. Uh, the creative process is like taking a motorcycle journey across country. Um, <laughs> like, uh, like as as in Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Except you're not thinking about philosophy and involuntary electroshock therapy. Um, at, while you're while you're riding your motorcycle, and here here's why. Um, as a, a preamble to this, I'll say that you know cars uh, have gotten too complex for anyone to understand and work on. Even when you take like when you take a, a you know late model car into the shop, they hook it up to a computer, you know, and the computer tells them uh, what service it needs or or diagnoses what's wrong with it and and things like this. You know the the uh, the engines aren't even engines anymore. They're, you know, I don't know, remarkable computer-controlled, uh, you know, locomotion-generating uh, devices. Um, but, uh, but motorcycles are still, are still pretty easy, and, I, you know, people can tinker with them more. You know, they're like old, they're like old cars. They don't have all that, uh, that computer-controlled stuff in it. So, you know, if you were going to take a, um, a motorcycle uh, cross-country trip, you'd have to have, you know, some tools with you, right? And, like, be able to, um, you know, I don't know, maintain the chain if it breaks or something like that. Or, you know, the, uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of stuff. Uh, are the tools a metaphor, metaphor for a writing staff? <laughs> Sing! <laughs> uh, sorry, I interrupted. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Um, except we're 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 not really like a wrench, or a, you know, we're not like a socket set or something. We are an inclined plane, Mark. The simplest <laughs> of all tools. Because <laughs> uh, I was talking about you know the, the being dicks. Oh. <laughs> um, right. So okay. So when you're on your motorcycle journey, not only do you have to uh, keep in mind where you're going, where you think you're going, detours along the way, uh, you, where you are, your progress towards your uh, eventual goal. Not only do you have to um, to uh, keep all of that in mind and be constantly revising your your um, ideas, it's uh, you also have to be paying attention to your bike, right? That is to say, you have to be constantly fine-tuning your process, uh, your means whereby, um, as, you know, as you do what you're doing. And so the creative process, I think, always involves a kind of self-consciousness about, uh, about itself um, as it goes on. The, uh, 
the bad thing happens when you think that this is a good topic for art because it's really not, you know, the, um, like your own creative difficulties as you're trying to write a story about normal people, uh, are not are not really all that interesting, right? All that all that narcissism. I, I mean, I realize I'm coming back to an old hobby horse of mine, which is that James Joyce ruined everything. But uh, <laughs> right, but um, you know, you you are not really the most interesting topic that you can write about, and your you know your creative difficulties or the vicissitudes of your process are not. You know, uh, maybe you can make something moderately interesting out of them but i i, I guarantee it that it, that's not the most interesting thing that uh mm. you know that you can make about people or about the world or about you know um something out there uh in experience rather than something at your uh at your desk so um while the while the creative process i think should involve a certain amount of navel gazing the the work you ultimately produce probably shouldn't uh <laughs> if it's if it's not going to be you know um, pointlessly narcissistic and 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 uh, self-involved. Mm. I wanted a couple things. I first want to say that uh, when you first said the creative process is like a, riding a motorcycle cross country, I was like, "Yep," because everyone you meet either wants to sell you coffee, get a ride, or is a prostitute. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, baby, gas, grass, or ass? No one rides for free. <laughs> <laughs> that, I know that's. I know that that was taught at all of the writing seminars in school. <laughs> um, definitely. And the second thing is that um, while I, I do know, I do agree with you somewhat in that um, I don't. I wouldn't want to set out necessarily to write something about writing. Uh, it's going to sneak in there regardless, because what you write is going to. And this is this is like my separate take on it, right? What you write is going to reflect like what's on your mind at the time while you're writing it. So as somebody who happens to write, like writing is all biased because it's self-selecting. Right, it's like written by writers primarily. It's like written by people. <laughs> who are so, I mean, this is important. Like, you know, this is very important. This is like, you know, history is written by historians, and like writing is written by writers. Um, but, but I would add um, to that that uh, there is as there is just as much danger um, to a positive outcome from you if you are seeking out to do this thing um, to be too afraid of being self indulgent. Than there is in um, in being too self indulgent, right? Uh, and, and this is sort of very similar to the arguments I made on the site a couple of months. I was about a month ago that I got a little bit of flack for, but I was kind of trolling people. Um, but where I was like, you know, it's it's very hard to argue that a specific piece of writing has a specific political consequence, right? Um, because uh, you you don't really know. Um, the impact of the thing that you're writing while you're writing it. And as a writer, you should consider it, it risky to you getting your work done to be paralyzed by fear. Right. And that, that is, that, that is a problem that it is that if I go around afraid that I'm writing something that's offensive, then I'm going to be a worse writer. And that that it might be more of a problem than actually writing something offensive. Um, and I think that, that this was a big thing that I learned again in like writing courses. And I, it stuck with me because I think it, I, and not just because I learned in writing courses, learning something in a writing course doesn't make it correct. Like that's just a given, <laughs> right? like, like that for, for Christ's sake, like that's just a given. Um, but it is something that I learned in a writing course that resonated with me and, and stuck with me. Uh, and I think that actually is kind of demonstrated on the site too, that, uh, you know, self-indulgence is kind of a mean spirited insult to level at somebody's writing because everybody's writing is kind of self-indulgent because they did it. Right. Right. So, so it's like, so it's an easy thing to make fun of people for. It's like calling a guy creepy. Like if, if a girl calls a guy creepy, like, 
and I think I read this on a on a site recently. So please forgive me if 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 you think I'm plagiarizing. I'm, I'm not. I'm citing. I just don't remember hmm. the source. Uh, a girl can call call a guy creepy, and uh, and like there's very little he can really do about that because it's it's a it's a charge that is based entirely on the determinations of somebody else. Right uh, about the thing that the person is doing, and it also sort of colors something that they might be doing that might be okay, uh, sort of independently in judgment of criteria they would use to determine whether or not to do the thing. Right. That, right. So, like, a, if I go up, yeah. The, the problem with it is that it's a statement about it's a statement about oneself that purports to be about somebody else. I suppose, or yeah, yeah. It's like it's 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 claiming on behalf of somebody else. It's like yeah, it's a self statement that you claim on behalf of somebody else. Right. Right, like only the person who's doing it really knows. I don't know. I guess you're right, but I mean, it, yeah. I guess I would compare it to like going up to a girl in a coffee shop and trying to talk to her can either be welcome or creepy, and the girl decides it, right? And there's nothing that you can do to really. I mean, you can try not to be creepy, which is yeah. important. <laughs> like, there, there are some but, things you can do that will push it over the line into basically objective creepiness, or I mean, at least well, that's like consensus <laughs> reality creepiness. I am not removing my mask. Jordan. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, well, I mean, we all, we're also talking about, I guess, what was that like the fan fiction with you in the story is the equivalent with self-indulgence where it's like Captain <laughs> Kirk needed Ensign Pete Fenzel to help him jump kick the alien. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like probably that person took the writing class lesson about not being self-indulgent too much to heart. <laughs> you know? I loved how that was the highest level. Like, do you remember the brunching shuttlecocks geek hierarchy, right? Oh, indeed. Um, Oh, and how like because that's one of the greatest things on the internet ever, and how, like also, one of the highest also levels. So Kirk is an ocelot or something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh man, they follow various continua of geekiness, among them being a fan of Japanese culture, uh, a fan of science fiction, like somebody who does RPGs, and it like said so and so considers self less geeky than, and like moved through it, and the and so in the sci-fi thing, the geekiest thing that you could be in sci-fi was like writing fa- erotic fan fiction where you put yourself in the story. Uh, I think was was. <laughs> Was the uh, was the geekiest thing that you could do, and then being was it, was furry. It like, yeah, furry. There, I was about to say, yeah, furry. Oh, they all converge at the end in this like grand <laughs> statement where it's like you write erotic Star Trek fan fiction with you in the story where Kirk is an ocelot or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, ocelot being, of course, a South American jungle cat. Um, but yeah. obviously, right? Obviously. He's not just a cat; he's a Latin cat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dios mío. <laughs> How do you say uh, make it so number one in Spanish? <laughs> That's a question. Uh, That's a question for the listeners. You can. Okay. Yeah. Or for Google Translate. I'll be back later. Yeah. <laughs> I want to I, I pick up on what Pete's talking about because I think it's, you know, I think it's so interesting. And I want to, I mean, I want to go in a lot of, um, I want to, I want to go in a lot of directions. You know, there's this, uh, there's this line in, um, in a poem by Auden, uh, who was, I think in that poem was, uh, like eulogizing Yeats. Uh, so he was writing about Yeats and, and the line that gets quoted often and out of context is poetry makes nothing happen. Right. The, and, and the idea, the lesson that's drawn from this when it's sort of proof texted as it were, uh, out of context is that art lives in this, you know, um, I don't know, uh, sealed off, uh, you know, space of, of, entire self-referentiality and and of course that's crap um uh, poetry makes all i mean art makes all kinds of things happen they're they're never the things that you intend though or the things you know the things that you might wish um it, i don't know it was a, a lot of people write poems or create art to get laid and 
Some of them do actually. <laughs> have, you, have you seen Finding Forrester? I love that movie so much. That's the one where like Sean Connery plays J.D. Salinger, but he lives in Harlem, and the black kid playing basketball learns how to write from him. Right. Oh, it's great. You're, you're the yeah, man now, yeah. There's that dog. wonderful thing. It's one. I said, "You're the man now, dog." <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the one where it's like they ask him why he won't do a public reading of his work, right? Um, and he's like, you know why people do readings? To get laid! <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he then, like, the kid then, like, does a reading of his work to try to get Anna Paquin, uh, who's the prep school girl in that movie, to, to get with him, which is always cute. But she runs <laughs> off with the vampire and, and uh, you know, thus endeth the lesson. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> Right, the kingdom, of cre- the kingdom of creativity is like to a man who gave a poetry reading to get laid by Anna Paquin. <laughs> I'm just imagining just, like going in to hear J.D. Salinger talk about writing and having him be like, "Look, it's all a waste of time because, in fact, chicks want vampires now, not writers anymore." So, <laughs> <laughs> how if J.D. Salinger were a vampire? It's- and he, he actually weren't dead, but he was like stalking the night, drinking on the blood of the living. I feel like that's a book that needs to be written so that people will buy it, not so that it will be good. Uh, <laughs> what would you call it? Like the, the, I don't know, something in the rye. I don't know, the catcher in the dark. I don't know. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> um, anybody think that we need to do Matt, uh, Matt, do you have something to say about this topic? Something further to say? I, you know, I sort of did, but now I. Uh... You, okay, well, if you do, let me say to you. Hacerlo así, el número uno. <laughs> Participar. <laughs> Just age according to Google Trends. <laughs> well, I thought you were trying to. I thought you were trying to segue a little bit. Um, a little bit before. So, look, the big thing in the news this week, oh. <laughs> at the moment, as we record this, is, is the Verizon iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to just continue, Matt. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is- no, no, no. You don't. You don't mean to trivialize either thing. You know, either thing by by making a joke. It, it's just that we're we're kind of we've we've determined that we're going to kind of wade into some territory that's very uncomfortable for us, both uh, for a lot of reasons. And um, so the big news right now is this this terrible shooting in uh, Arizona, where um, uh, in Tucson, Arizona, where. Uh, I guess uh, Gabrielle Giffords, who is a uh, uh, U.S. representative, was was targeted, and a whole bunch of people were tragically killed, uh, including like a child, which is which is unbearably sad. Um, I'm actually not sure it's right to say tragically killed. They they were horribly killed. No. you know what I mean. It's not. No, no, no. What? Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say like it's, well, Joyce talks about this. I know you hate Joyce. Hmm. But uh, but there's a great passage in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man where he talks about this, right? I think, um, or, or maybe it's maybe it's a different work of his where he talks about like a young girl who's killed in a stagecoach accident, um, and how it's not a tragedy because tragedies imply that there was a purpose that she was somehow involved in this purpose. You know what I mean? Like there was some sort of meaningful choice that was made that brought to this kind of circumstance. Sure. Uh, and that it is not tragedy. You know, it is a catastrophe. Uh, it is it's horrible. But it is not a tragedy because tragedy makes it seem as though it is this sort of like sad fact of her life that this had to have happened because of something that she did or something that she thought or some quality that she had. And for this nine-year-old girl, this was not the case. No, this no. Is her, yeah, her yeah. Dots, 
yeah, it's not formally like semantically tragic because she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and and that's just it, right? So, and it's very very sad. It's just like for for purists for of the use of the word um, it, who want to make sure that we don't sort of lose precision of language in describing these things in our effort to make them seem adequately serious because they are whether we say they are or not. Um, that tragic is is not the best word for it. I right. think. Um, yeah. That, uh, yeah. I mean, so hor- I, these people were horribly killed. You know, like right, uh, right, right. It's it's terrible, and it's you know it's on everybody's mind. And so we want we want to talk about it, but we want to talk about it without talking about it. Um, in in a way, right? Like, here's what we don't want to talk about. We don't want to talk about the inflamed political rhetoric that has kind of sprung up around around this thing, and we certainly don't want to throw gasoline on that fire. Um, right, but like a, th- we don't see a point in it. We think it would actually be d- kind of destructive and not not helpful at all. Uh, and b, it's it's really outside the scope of what we do. We're a you know a pop culture analysis uh, site. You know, um, we we also we we don't want to speculate on on you know criminality or motives or or anything like this. Um, but uh, but what we want to talk about is is the culture a little bit like uh, you know so so if we if we seem to be if what we're doing seems to be an exercise in question begging because we're not kind of going to the to the places that that you know obviously we ought to go well we're doing that very intentionally and uh you know and so we're sorry if it's fr- we don't mean it to be frustrating um it may mm. be frustrating but uh we're all going to have to live with that i guess because we we want to focus in on a on a specific um uh sort of subset of issues around that that mm-hmm. that a consideration of this this horrible event might give rise to. So uh, we published on the site um, a, a week or so ago uh, Belinky's article about first-person shooters and whether those those video games are um, are wrong, capital W, are capital MW, morally wrong, uh, because they um, they simulate, they sort of represent something that is in reality uh, quite quite horrible you know and is is sort of a national a, a national trauma that will unfold over the next i don't know period of time um is is there some connection to be made i mean i've, I've talked enough for now well the connection to the, to the panel i think the the connection is that a lot of the things that are being said elsewhere on the internet you know th- those other bad sites that you shouldn't waste your time by going to um <laughs> is people people either saying that the tone of political discourse in this country gave rise to these tragic events or that in fact uh it is completely foolish to say that the tone of political discourse in this country gave rise to these tragic events and that in fact it was you know uh one or two crazy people being crazy um so, I mean, kind of the, the broader question might just be to what extent are things that people say, uh, can, they, can they be judged for events that happen in the world that seem to have some similarity to those things that people say? I don't know. That, I mean, I'm trying to, like, phrase it in the most neutral way possible. Uh, yeah. 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 Here, I'll, bring up, I'll bring up another example. Um, 
Because I'm glad we're talking about this because I think uh, my sister contacted me about the post, right? She, she, she uh, sent me a message saying, oh, you know, wasn't this post about first-person shooters awkwardly timed because it ended up being up on the site when this horrible thing happened? And it's about – it sort of discusses uh, this sort of uh, violence in society. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I thought about it. I'm like, it is awkward. Your, your reaction is like, like that's un- uncomfortable. But it's also appropriate, right? Um, the, the example that I've written about on Overthinking It recently uh, that I want to point to – is um, right around when the Virginia Tech shooting happened, and Saturday Night Live had done this sketch about people shooting each other to the tune of the Imogen Heap song "Hide and Seek." Right, and it was this sort of Dada-esque uh, comedy sketch about like people doing these over-the-top stylized uh, shootings and in the style like, of the also, OC. It a, yeah, it was a parody of the OC, right? It was a parody of the OC. So, and, and obviously, it's not taking gun violence seriously. Like, it is. It is also sort of parodying the OC, not really taking gun violence seriously. But like, its relationship with gun violence is like not a serious relationship. Uh, and it, when the Virginia Tech shooting happened, uh, NBC like pulled it from everywhere and was like, "We don't want this sketch out there." They never put it up on their website. Um, they they it's been purged. You know, they purged it from YouTube as much as they could to get the video that I showed. I'm sure you can find it some places. I mean, I'm not the best searcher in the world as much as I can find about cows being born. But um, to get the video that I put up in the post, I had to go to some, like, Spanish video site or something, right? Um, you know, engage, participar. Um, yeah. but, but, like, this is an even more clear example where the Saturday Night Live sketch about people shooting each other has nothing to do with the Virginia Tech shooting. But the association, like, makes people feel like they're being guilty or inappropriate, um, whereas at the same time, you could argue very vehemently on either side of the actual shooting about the actual events and have it seem appropriate. So um, in this sort of area of vitriol that we're trying to try to draw a line around involving the current sh- you know, thing that has just happened, um, it's like you're allowed to talk about the specific events being related to some sort of crazy hysteria, and you're allowed to talk about like people doing them again and or why or why not that would happen. But you're not allowed to talk about anything like on the outside of that. It's kind of like there's this sort of like vibration that seems to go through the culture sometimes where it's like, oh, you know, you can't go see uh, – what's a good example? Oh, you can't go see the insane clown posse because some kid shot somebody, right? Um, and it's like this is – you can talk – you can do things that are more directly related to it that more – that might actually have more to do in the real world with it happening again. And you can do things that are totally not related to it. But there's this like circle of safety that gets drawn around these things that I think shows that we're not comfortable – with um, the indirect relationships between uh, culture and action, right, and these statements and these realities. And I think that, that the, the example I brought up I did for a reason because I think it shows that a lot of this discomfort is happening based on an emotional reaction that doesn't seem to have much to do with a sort of definitive understanding of whether these things are going to matter or not, right? So like Blinky's post seems to me very unlikely to have anything to do with anything. And I'm not saying my sister was saying we need to take it down, um, but like – we can go through the different kinds of things that would make even this, you know, as the conversation goes back to Columbine too, like, oh, there was the Marilyn Manson and that's why they shot the people, right? Or, yeah. oh, you know, they went bowling, is, you know, and that's why they shot the people. Um, but like, the, like, we seem to want to draw these boundaries so that we only say safe things, but I have yet to really see or hear a scheme for drawing these boundaries that works or that is related to the, the actual actions and the actual consequences. You know what I mean? Like maybe we can't draw these boundaries. I don't know. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? I just I just did a brain dump on a lot of stuff that's been building up. Um, from what from what you said, I mean it's it's clear that we're we're sort of very afraid 
right, that that what we say has terrible consequences. You know, the, the <laughs> idea that like our talking about it would have some kind of terrible effect. There seems to be some right. kind of, uh, you know, that uh, there seems to be implicit in that uh, a fear that what that not exactly that we're you know so powerful that our words affect. Um, uh, you know, the, the outcome of, of uh, events out in the world. But but maybe that, like, there's just bad juju that obtains, um, mm. you know, uh, when when we when we talk about things like that. There's a, it, there also seems to be kind of an inability to to differentiate between uh, an, an inability to be subtle uh, in our um, differentiation about certain kinds of speech. And this was something that yeah. like that. Um, uh, kind of goes back to the the introductory point that Jordan made when he said, "Well, to what extent is discourse is talking about things or you know putting talk uh, and and talk by the way is, is kind of like poetry, right? It's a it's a catch all phrase that includes uh, all discourses and artistic production. Yeah. To to what extent is is talk uh, liable, as it were, for um, things actually happening in the world? And you know the answer to that is, of course, it depends on the talk. You know, and it depends yeah. on the context uh, that that talk is in. It depends on the kind of the the purported and the occult aims of that uh, of that talk. And it you know. Um, and and it depends on the kind of the the circumstances, you know, political and um, uh, kind of framing circumstances uh, that 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 go along with it, that go along with the talk. So so one of the things that happens right around uh, uh, around really horrible around traumatic events is that we we sort of lose an ability to make to make distinctions, um, and. Uh, and that's something that can be manipulated by a lot of people for a lot of political ends. And so I, I think it's important that we – oh, God, and here I said it wasn't going to – we weren't going to advocate for anything, right? Like, but I think it's important that we, that we retain our – For everybody by, by a Roomba, right? Because Roomba is a clean – send me my free Roomba. <laughs> I think it's important to retain our ability to, to make distinctions in, you know, in times like this mm-hmm. about – um, exactly what uh, what kind of assumptions obtain with the discourse that we're talking about. But, right, right, what, right. If, what if it's our ability to make distinctions that actually causes the horrible violence? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> Sorry, guys, you're, being, you're being facetious, <laughs> I hope, right? Like that's Oh, of course I'm being facetious. Okay, but I do think <laughs> what, what, what you were saying about um, In that case, I, I better we better close this website down. <laughs> That's actually between certain Calvinist forms of Christianity, right? Well, well, sure, yeah. That um, that if you, or or, and also Catholicism up to a certain point, right? Where like pagan babies went to limbo, but once you're baptized, you can go to hell, right? And like Like, from a game theoretical perspective, getting baptized might not be your best move. (laughs) It's not a strictly dominant strategy. Yeah. but what I, what I think is interesting when we're talking about this idea of distinction, like the, the legal thing that you can't do with speech is incite, right? Like you, you can't you can't say, I would like people to go, break into Pete Fenzel's house and steal his root beer, right? Um, they better not try that. I have rights, <laughs> Second Amendment rights to yeah. bear root beer. But the, the thing is, like, I could advocate that on our website, and I highly doubt that anything would happen, right? right. Um, but then if I were to write a fictional story about someone breaking into Pete's house and how delicious it was to steal the root beer that did cause somebody to break in and steal it, right? 
the the act of inciting of calling for it directly would still be illegal and the story that caused the actual action would still be protected and right? the law, the so law like, sidesteps this whole discourse with with you know what reasonable or reasonable person's expectations right which are which is an exercise in question begging but never mind yeah but but that uh that you have there, there are sort of two things that are different about those right there's the one of them has a causal relationship to the crime and one of them is just a property of the speech that is there whether the crime is committed or not, you know? Um, and, like, currently the legal setup in this nation is that it's the property of the speech that determines whether it's legal or illegal. The causal relationship is, like, is something else. Um, and it's, it doesn't seem to me that there is a one-to-one relationship to those, although certainly, like, I think that for the most part we can say that direct inciting is probably more likely to have an actual real world consequence than than telling a story in a really vivid way but i'm not sure about that again i mean i, I would add that the legal side of this is probably really complicated and i'm sure that there are lawyer i know there are lawyers who listen to our podcast who would like will be like correcting me 80 times about all the little things that might not be right um but i mean i think this is important to say i think it's also important to note that of course legal and right aren't the same thing and it's tricky to justify your morals based on the laws, but I think that is an interesting frame, an important framework to start from, right? Like it's an important place to, to start with. Um, and whether it happens to formally be legal in a given state or not doesn't change whether it's right or not. But well, I will well, say that I find, well, you know. I was going to say, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm not making a claim as to whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that the law ought to mm. uh, protect the things that are right and punish the things that are wrong, Right. So like so this is what the law does does that actually make sense or is that sort of a blind spot in the law somehow yeah. I think the biggest blind spot in the law that this shows is a big blind spot around moral luck which I think is just sort of required in um these kinds of frameworks, right, in, in the kind of legal framework that we have where people commit crimes and are punished for them. Uh, because a lot of the time, every, people have every intention of committing a crime and they just don't do it, right, or it doesn't happen, or they, they have no intention of committing crime. And so the actual real-world consequences of an intention are punished even, you know, independently of us. Uh, I mean, there are legal considerations of intent, obviously. They do color things. They're important. But um, two people can want to do the very same thing and end up with wildly different things actually happening. And it would be infeasible for a legal system to exist that took all of the different variables that made that possible into account. Right. right? Uh, and, and as such, like, we owe it to ourselves to not just trick these things based on law, but I mean, also, I think we owe it to ourselves to understand that, that, that this is a pretty serious limitation, in what the law can do, um, you know, because I mean, I, that's a good question. Like if, if I go around, say that I, if I'm writing, say that I'm really masochistic and I write these stories myself under a pseudonym, you know, like, like, like <laughs> where it's like break into Fenzel's house. So what happens if somebody breaks into photo- Fenzel's house too? Beach party at the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, break into Fenzel's party house too is a great movie, and you should all watch it. I'm filming it next week. It's going to be awesome. Um, but this is also, you know, what this also reminds me of is it, a lot of this discussion reminds me of like sex crime stuff because sex crime stuff is is cl- another clear example where the legal and the moral and the hysterical all kind of combine and fail to combine in like horrifying ways but the idea that like you could have pictures of yourself and it would be illegal to have pictures of yourself like if i were to post a story saying that people should break into my house and steal my root beer and then somebody does it but i don't identify that i was the person who wrote the story if you're a police officer and you f- or you're a detective and you're trying to figure out why my house was broken into and you find that story you're still going to investigate 
humiliate the person who did it, right? So, like, the action apparently there um, was done with, like, the same intention. Uh, and then it's like, well, it's done by me rather than it's done by you. So, like, that, the, the number of different things that cascade in terms of that revelation, you know, are, like uh, – are 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 interesting because it's like well now the person who broke into my house and read the story didn't know that I was the person who wrote the story so did they really break into my house like did they do something wrong well they certainly intended to but if I'm the one who told them that it was okay can they still do it like what kind of consent can I sign off on and what if I do it like indirectly through a cultural a cultural mechanism rather than like directly through like a written a written note you know what sure. I mean. Like, uh, and, and this, uh, this gets into interesting territory, actually, in, in all kinds of cultural production. Like, for instance, the reason why we have uh, prize fighting is because it's implied that you can sign a contract which allows somebody to wail on your face for nine rounds. You know? Right, right, right. Um, and there, there have been attempts made occasionally by jurisdictions of one sort or another to say that, in fact, you can't sign that contract. And, like, if you, they don't do it for boxing because boxing is old and established, but they yeah. did it for ultimate fighting every now and then. They'd say, like, yeah. if you guys have this event, we will lock up all the fighters for assault. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Which is an interesting proposition. I mean, I think that it's something that people who make culture have to take seriously. As somebody who likes to write things, I prefer to have strong protections against speech. Or against speech, so people don't talk to me while I'm working. Because for Christ's sake, I'm busy. But no for protections of speech. Wow, that would be an unfortunate typo in the Bill of Rice, right there. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> there shall be establishment of a religion. What? Oh crap! Yeah. So they, like, do you realize you know, how, how expensive it is to move the lithographic type? Like, this is very. Expensive. You've all heard about the uh, the adulterer's Bible, right? No, what is this? There, there's a, uh, there's a, it's a very expensive book if you can find one of the few surviving copies. Uh, the, the, the scene with the Ten Commandments left out a crucial knot. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's real nice. That's yeah. excellent. You know, you want to. <laughs> like this stamp with the plane, with the, uh, with the plane that's, that's upside down. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one another example of something that's current in the popular culture that's related to this is uh, this whole Mark Twain thing, right? Where there somebody is publishing, and I forget who it is because I just like like they intend me to. I just read the headline without questioning it hmm. or determining what its source was. Uh, that somebody um, is re- republishing Huckleberry Finn without dropping n bombs and instead using the word slave, which is of course like very different. Uh, and and I mean, there's there is the initial gut debate around this which is is it worth it to impinge upon the purity of the uh the art in order to advance this like politically correct agenda but we can frame it in this discussion too and say like how do you know that in this kind of speech this is going to make a meaningful difference to anybody right like like does it do we people do we really think that this is where people are learning this word and like do we really think that this is what's causing these problems um you know do, do we really think that um that censoring this and changing this is going to be the same as making the same change to something else, right? So, like, if a newscaster goes on the news and starts dropping N-bombs talking about people, right? And they'd be like, you know, oh, you know, like, uh, Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, you know, bleep, 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 you know, like, it starts saying stuff like that. Um, 
it's not the same as changing the word in the Mark Twain, or is it? Right? Like, like I mean, this is. I mean, I, I the, the, argue, the argument about the Mark Twain thing, and it was done by a professor, at, you know, uh, and it was done for a major publisher. The the idea being. Um, Schools will not teach this book because it has the language in it, and and that, in, in a way, we have to destroy this. We have to destroy this novel in order to save it, um, uh, so that you know it can get back on uh, on syllabi uh, because you know the the n words won't uh, w- disqualify it uh, ipso facto from from being taught in high schools in certain in right. certain instances which is so, which is sad which is just really sad well, this is i mean you know this is the kind of thing i actually i remember the thing i was trying to say before now when when i started talking about poetry makes nothing happen the problem with with things like sketchy or the problem with you know a lot of prohibitions um or uh, you know a problem with what we do uh, to one another when we start talking to one another about inappropriateness is that so many of the things that that we we say are conversation stoppers uh, that are that are kind of meant to be uh, meant to be self evident you know uh, Orwellian right is someone pointed out once or I read pointed out once is is something like that or that's double think you know right a lot a lot of stuff around George Orwell you know that's there's no counter argument to it you know mm-hmm. there's no mm-hmm. counter argument to saying that a guy is uh, is sketchy or creepy or whatever you know whatever we were talking about right um, sort of there's no counter there's no counter argument to uh, to certain things about political correctness, um, mm. I, other than to say lighten up, Francis, right? <laughs> Although I mean, even but this is not the time of, to say lighten up, Francis. These are serious times, and well, we're yeah. not allowed to say these things, right? right but that kind of right, exactly, because you yoked, you know, like um, you're uh, you're, you're kind of in a bind because your your the political beliefs that you purport to have. Oh God! What am I trying to say? That someone else is controlling the terms of the dis- discourse in that, and that's a that's a rhetorical judo move um, that that we pull on each other a lot around around things like this, and along with our our ability to make uh, distinctions, uh, our ability to to kind of understand that honorable people can differ is um, is paramount. I think. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jordan. No, no, no! I was interrupting you. Uh, if anything, you should apologize for not allowing me to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the, the idea, though, that um, that things are conversation stoppers, which I, I totally agree that they are. But uh, but is that necessarily bad? Right. Are, like what, well, what kind of uh, what kind of value system are you setting up where the free flowing, the continuing free flowing of discourse is the highest good? Sure. Right. I mean, and I'm not saying that I necessarily disagree with you. I mean, it's sort of a, a utopian idea that if we could only be clear with each other, you know, um, then we would find that we're not actually so far apart. But the counter argument, which I don't want to, I don't want to make this a, a conversation stopper either. But the counter argument is, if the speech is actually harmful, then other people's right to be harmed may outweigh your right to speak, right? To so not be harmed, right? Not be, not to be harmed. Well, whatever floats their boat. <laughs> Hurt me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but no, obviously, people's people's right not to be harmed, and of course, that's also a conversation stopping thing, right? It's sort of like, well, well, how dare you uh, protect your right to talk when I'm over here actually getting hurt? Um, and yet, it is it is kind of a a consideration, right? I think I have not yet met the social norm that will stop me from talking. 
Well, this is I, bring I, it on. I, I once saw a um, I once saw a talk by uh, I saw I saw a talk by Stanley. Fish. No, I may have read this in an article by by Stanley Fish. Um, about pluralism and liberal democracies, the idea being that that you know liberal democracies are are built on a contradiction, which is that uh, though they purport to kind of allow all all points of view or to kind of to um, hold up as an ideal the the peaceful coexistence of a lot of points of view, the the one point of view that they cannot tolerate is that certain points of view are intolerable. Mm-hmm. Does that, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? That is like in a liberal democracy, you can hold almost any point of view except that liberal democracy is a bad idea. Well, I mean, you can hold that, but no, I know, I know what you mean. I think the first articulation of it that you made was was better than the second one. That, that it's like that that the idea of like you know, I, I never, can't tolerate I never rewrite saying. anything that I ever work on. <laughs> in my case, writing yeah. is not rewriting. <laughs> I just one draft and I'm done. It's all like the road. It's just like one scroll that I ran <laughs> out. Like, yeah. months <laughs> it's Jack. Ker- <laughs> it's Jack Kerouac. That's not writing. Hey, that's typing. What 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 book do you think would be made the most better by having not been revised and published in as an unedited first draft? Um, like what? The Hobbit? No. I don't know. <laughs> Boy, that's a that's an interesting question. I have no idea. <laughs> There are Wait. very, very few writers who, who get worse by rewriting, but I imagine they're out there, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that in a lot of them, this would be like a crazy, surrealistic exercise because there would be sections that would just be blank, be like, fill this in later. And then there would be <laughs> sections like, this doesn't matter. And there'd be whole chapters that didn't fit in uh, and all that other stuff. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, I. You know, I, I, I think that Jordan, I think that like, uh, you know, I, I don't know how, where on the seriousness continuum you were when you said that, but I think that, that, that what you're saying, uh, you know, deserves to be taken, deserves to be taken seriously. You know what I mean? What if, you know, absolutely free speech or even, you know, even free without hurting anyone, what if that's not absolutely a moral good? You know, it seems, it seems to be a political good because the, the, um, uh, you know, it turns out in practice that, that the situations in which it's not, it's not protected, turn into bad situations pretty quickly. But, um, uh, because well, but of, because I, the question of who decides, but what, you know what I mean? What if like, um, the free flowing, uh, exchange of points of view is, is in fact not the best way that we can live. And, um, what, uh, I think that there's probably a very good case to be made for it. Like I, I have thought about this a bit and I, I think that it probably is, but I don't think that most people who make that argument on the internet, especially have really thought it through that much. I think that it's, it's sort of like, uh, what, what, you know, a couple of people were saying earlier that, uh, that writers writing tends to be written by writers Mm-hmm. Discourse tends to be created by people who value discourse and value their ability to create discourse. So it's almost, I mean, it's almost literally unthinkable for somebody who's going into this kind of uh, debate saying like, well, okay, let's, uh, let's look at these questions and discuss them and see if we can come to an answer. You know, um, not someone who's coming in with their with their ideology already kind of staked out and saying, like, I'm going to fight this and win. But rather, uh, let's sort of talk this out and see where we're going. The idea that that might be a bad way to go about any questions at all uh, is very, very difficult for me to even wrap my head around, you know, to to even like formulate a defense for. And yet I don't have any uh, because I haven't been able to formulate anything about it. I certainly don't have any strong evidence uh, supporting it. Right. (laughs) 
Well, are there, I mean, certain things are conversation stoppers. The question, if you, to formulate the question in one particular way, it's like, are there compu- conversations that ought to be stopped, right? Mm. I mean, one thing I would add is that... This um, one. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. It probably doesn't deserve... No, not <laughs> no, what I would say is that I would set back to something I said earlier, which is that um, this is another situation where on the other side of the, of, the, of the event, we need to consider that the right and the legal are not the same, that even if we determine that certain things ought not to be said or certain conversations ought not to take place, that does not necessarily follow that legal authority is the authority that we should use to make this happen. Right, because there might be further, there might be further detriment. I mean, I think the reason that the government protects free speech is not because we think that free speech is a universal public good that the government is promoting. We protect free speech because we don't trust the government's ability to make reasonable decisions about the regulation of speech. Right, which is to say, we, and, don't, and trust like, our, we don't trust our own ability to make uh, reasonable decisions. No, no, the governments. I don't mean our own. I mean we don't we don't trust a representative government. And this is a very specific thing. The Bill of Rights is put into place when the Constitution was approved because it increased the power of the centralized government of a federated country over the Articles of Confederation. Right. So the idea is that in this kind of system, the majority of the population of the country has greater political power than it does under the more broadly federated system or the more broadly oh, devolved system right and that we don't trust that majority to the did you mean the constitution as opposed to the as opposed to the articles confederation as uh, rather than the bill of rights as opposed to the articles of confederation well the bill of rights the constitution is the expansion of federal power from the articles of confederation the bill of rights essentially is like very specifically delineating restrictions on that federal power right what i mean is no law doing blah 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 the, the Bill of Rights is a constraint on the Constitution that was placed there in acknowledgement of the fact that the Constitution expanded the powers of the federal government. Yes, right? yes. And then it was like a necessary part of the compromise that made the Constitution possible. Yes. I mean, I want to make and sure so, we get our constitutional law correct here on the overthinking yeah. guest. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. But the point is that it's not that we think that free speech is good. It's that we don't trust the Congress to decide what is good or bad speech. And we don't trust the judges, really, and we don't trust the president. Uh, because, not because of like so the government is bad but because there are majority and minority interests in our like very widely dispersed country and we don't want like virginia and new york getting together and telling everybody else that they can't say bad things about virginia and new york right <laughs> uh, it's it's a, it's a sectional thing and, and i mean i joke but it's pretty much the same thing nowadays i mean sectionalism isn't that different it's just that now they argue about different things they don't argue about slaves anymore like except in school books <laughs> they you know it's arguing about other political issues that are taking advantage of the same sort of long-term structural differences in the economies and the and the way that these places are constituted, right? And it's like we don't trust the Supreme Court, which might have been uh, appointed by a president who might have certain political obligations to decide whether or not certain religions that might be funding the campaigns of these people, right, like should get protection under the law. And that's why the First Amendment is there, not because it's good, but because the law is not the way to, to deal with it in our limited system, right? Um, Anyway. It's pragmatic, right? It's not. It's not saying this is a positive good. It's saying this will prevent this one specific bad that we've known governments to do before. And I mean, in a way, it's almost like uh, it's a sledgehammer, horsefly kind of thing, right? It's like, oh yeah, okay, because you know, pamphleteering was outlawed. We're going to say that all speech is okay, no matter how demonstrably terrible the speech is. It's all okay. Uh, no, you know, no, no exceptions, no, uh, no learning, no hugging. I don't know where I was going with that. 
No, I know. I think I think that's I think that's the point. I think there's a. It's really it's kind of fun to go through the Constitution and be like, this is the specific thing that happened that caused them to put this in here, and this is the specific thing that happened that caused them to put this in here, because it isn't a credo. <laughs> you know what's hilarious, by the way? I'm, I'm, I'm getting specifically political here, but I, it's a historical thing that's funny. Um, the debate over the the mosque being within X yards of Ground Zero, right? <laughs> Islamic Community Center. I mean, let's... the the specific reason why there's the establishment clause about not saying uh, one religion over another is because in England prior to uh, the Revolutionary War, there was a period when Puritans weren't allowed to build their churches within X yards of any Catholic church or, or yeah, or any, any established Anglican church. The Puritans couldn't build their, their churches within there. So they had to go like outside of the city limits to do it. And people were annoyed by that. So that, yeah. that is in fact what it was about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, I mean, this, this doesn't necessarily mean that, I mean, people do treat the law like a religious text, and they treat it like something that tells them what's right and wrong, and they certainly treat the Constitution as a holy document, um, which I guess is sort of a good thing sometimes, but, um, but, but I, mean, I, I mean, I do think, I do hold an opinion that, that pretty free speech is, is a pretty good thing, right? Like that, that unrestricted speech is kind of important, and that it is a public good. I mean, that, the main intellectual argument in our intellectual tradition is like the John Stuart Mill sort of neoclassical argument, right, where it's like um, the truth will win out. Right. Uh, or it will went out sufficiently such that like, like it's the same, it's the same. You can't the have a place of ideas, right? Free speech, basically. What? The, the marketplace on, of, of ideas. Exactly. It's that like the same principles, it's, which is funny because you see sometimes the party split different ways. And I hate to be specifically political, but you see people who are like very laissez faire about economics being very controlling about speech when the philosophical underpinnings of both legal protections are the same. Right. Where it's like we should have a marketplace for ideas and the same reason we have a free market, because we have implicit trust in people to make these choices in a better way than a directed system can. Right. Um, Which is why you should buy or not buy Code of Duty Black Ops. I'm not sure exactly uh, how that how that all shakes out. Um, Yeah. All to say is that my brilliant idea for a a farcical John Wilkes Booth first person shooter is probably not. A good idea to go ahead with. I played the demo first mission of that, Mark, and I really, I'm really curious how you're going to follow it up. I don't really know. (laughs) I like the stealth mode. Like that's cool when you're sneaking through the rafters of the theater. But like, because like it's a little bit of Metal Gear Solid, but with handlebar mustaches, which make everything better. But then like after that, it's like I don't know, man. Then you have to you have to fight the octopus, right? No, seriously, like as as you know, resulting from the discussion in uh, uh, the comments about Blinky's article, I had this idea like doing some Photoshop mockups of what a John Wilkes Booth first person shooter uh, game would look Mm -hmm. like, and I was gonna do it, except you know this thing happened. So, uh, see that that would have been unfortunate (laughs) had your sister. Would it really have been bad? Right. I mean, yes, I can also feel that clenching feeling in my stomach that, wow, it's really awkward that this is on the podcast now. But it's like, is that real? I mean, is it what is the real causal relationship between political assassinations and ironic 150 year later video game adaptations of previous political assassinations? You know what I mean? And like, what is the knowing or not knowing? How does that affect it? Like not knowing or not knowing the actual causal relationship affect whether and our main decision is like, Eesh. like that's our big reaction. Our big conclusion. <laughs> Rightfully so. What? Rightfully so. Rightfully yeah. so. Rightfully so. 
There's a podcast title, Eesh. By the way, before we wrap up, I do want to say that before we started the podcast, we were talking about um, our desire not to descend into political yapping at each other. And I introduced some of the podcasters to the concept of war garble, uh, which is, of course, a lovely concept. It's this idea that like, when you get involved in arguments on the internet that are like unsubstantiated or illogical and just like ranting and ranting and ranting and there's this famous picture of a dog with its head in a sprinkler like a high power sprinkler um the caption like war garble um and that <laughs> yeah, we agree I, I think that's uh, animal cruelty and i think it's terrible to point people to that <laughs> on the internet or to even I, to even okay. condone that they uh, that they you know look at it Hey, Matt, I'm having a, a party. You're invited to it. It's lemon-themed. I'll send you a URL. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, that we agreed beforehand that that was our safety word, war garble, that if anything started going over the line, we would start saying, oh, that's a war garble right there. Oh, man. Nobody, nobody, nobody has used it, though. No, know. nobody has. But I wanted to get it in there because I thought it was amusing, which is what she said. Um <laughs> Well, and, you know, we always turn these conversations over to our listeners in the, uh, in the comment threads, and we wouldn't want you to be involved in this kind of scenario without knowing the safe word. So now you just... Absolutely. <laughs> so just, just link up the picture of the dog. So uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or uh, call or text 203-285-6401, though we never do a listener feedback episode. So your best bet is probably to go to the comment thread uh, on this uh, episode show notes on the site to uh, join the conversation um yeah all right well we're looking forward to you doing that this is going to be an interesting discussion this week uh thanks to the panelists <laughs> thanks to thanks to the listeners uh and thanks to you wait 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 what site you ask why don't you know it's www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture first person shooters and the assassination of abraham lincoln to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Don't deserve those plural. They probably don't deserve the popular culture, a popular culture <laughs> to the level of scrutiny they don't deserve. Hey, can I put one last thing in here about the uh, Huck Finn uh, substitution of the N-word for slave? So somebody apparently went back and did the same thing except replaced the N-word with the word hipster. <laughs> so here's a little here's a little excerpt from that. <clears throat> Jim was monstrous proud about it, and he got so he wouldn't hardly notice the other hipsters. Hipsters would come miles to hear Jim tell about it, and he was more looked up to than any hipster in the country. <laughs> Strange hipsters would stand with their mouths open and look him all over, saying that he was a wonder. <laughs> Hipsters is always talking about witches in the dark by the kitchen fire, but whenever one was talking and letting on to know about such things, Jim would happen in and say, hmm, what do you know about witches? And that hipster was corked up and had to take a back seat. <laughs> wow. <laughs>